The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Bridging the Gap to Increased Patient Satisfaction in Moderate to Severe Atopic Dermatitis, Understanding the Role and Clinical Utility of Targeted Therapy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash DRZ 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, my name is Linda Steingold, and I'm the Director of Dermatology Clinical Research at Henry Ford Health in Detroit, Michigan. Welcome to this educational activity on bridging the gap to increase patient satisfaction in moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, understanding the role and clinical utility of targeted therapy. Joining me today is my friend and colleague, Dr. Jonathan Silverberg. He joins us from George Washington School of Medicine and Health Sciences in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks. It's great to be here. So when we think about atopic dermatitis, we understand that this involves 9.6 million children in the United States, and it's interesting that about a third of them actually have moderate to severe disease. Now, this isn't just a disease of children. In fact, about 16.5 million adults have atopic dermatitis as well. Some of these have disease that has persisted through childhood, but some of them actually have new onset disease as well. And we know about 40% of our adult patients also have atopic dermatitis. And this is a chronic disease. We have to have a plan of action for acute flares as well as, as chronic control. And this is a disease that really is something that has a tremendous impact on our patients' overall mental health. You know, imagine walking into a room and instead of greeting the world with your smile, people see your red and inflamed skin and they kind of judge you. So a lot of our patients have psychosocial problems. We can evaluate the disease really based on its severity. Those patients with mild disease have some pink skin, slightly erythematous. They can have some flaking, some thickening of the skin. As it gets more severe, we can see increase in the redness and the thickening. Moderate patients might have a little bit of oozing and crusting. And then when we look at our severe patients, they can have much more erythematous skin. We see excoriations, it weeps, it crusts. And we can see patients who have mild, moderate, and severe disease within the same patient. And Jonathan, is that something that you see commonly? All the time. That heterogeneity, I think, is a real issue. Yeah, and that's why it's always a good idea to have a patient undress when you see them for the first time or have somebody evaluate all of their skin the first time just to get an idea of, of how that skin looks. Now, in those patients with skin of color, it can be much more difficult to assess the severity because the erythema can be obscured. And, you know, we tend to underestimate the severity and we underestimate the extent of the disease. And for a lot of these patients, it's not only the disease, but it's the sequelae of the disease, the hyperpigmentation, the hypopigmentation, that's really quite distressing for these patients. Jonathan, do you have a way that you kind of can give people to, to get a better understanding of, of how severe the erythema is and the disease is in skin of color? Well, I think the first thing is recognizing the problem and, and the challenge, right? And not trying to apply the sort of same color palette or standard that, you know, one would look at uh, phototype 1, 2 skin with and, and then applying that to someone with phototype 5, 6. Uh, so, you know, it's really getting that experience, uh, you know, assessing diverse skin types and, um, and recognizing 
that, you know, for, for some of these types of, you know, for some of these images in particular, this, this is not post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, right? This is how erythema manifests and it's going to be in shades of brown rather than in shades of pink. Um, so I think if, if one comes to that realization and, and, and develops some, um, you know, fluency with this, uh, then I think it will go a long way in properly assessing patients of all types. Those are great tips. So I'll take this, you know, uh, topic, and that is really understanding some of the potential differences in terms of perception of severity between patients and physicians. And some of it relates to exactly the point uh, that Linda mentioned, where, you know, some of it is maybe we as clinicians don't fully appreciate the severity, but patients know what they're feeling. Uh, but there's likely other reasons that are there are at play as well. Uh, but these are the results of just one study that has demonstrated that lack of concordance between patient and physician perception. Uh, it's a cross-sectional study uh, of patients with atopic dermatitis uh, that assessed the disease both by the patient's self-report as well as the physician's report, um, so to speak, using the uh, Exmaerian Severity Index score, which is a weighted average of both lesional severity and extent. And the level of agreement matched overall, uh, you know, reasonably well in about 68% of cases. But that's not 100% of cases. That's not even 90% of cases, right? So 32% of cases there was a mismatch between how patients and physicians rated the severity. At 11%, uh, patients reported a higher degree of disease severity versus their physicians, right? So that would mean that in 11% of patients, we failed, so to speak, right? We underappreciated how bad the disease was. And on the flip side, in about 20% of cases, patients reported lower disease severity versus physicians. So sometimes we might look at the skin and it looks one way, but the patient may say, well, maybe the itch is not so bad or something else, right? That that's not bothering them as much or they learn to cope, right? So often there's a disconnect between what we see versus what patients are feeling or what they are reporting. And I think it's very important then to just keep that in mind as you're making decisions around how to best assess patients with atopic dermatitis. And those are some really important points. And I think a lot of our patients don't know any different. You know, you take a, a chronic eczema patient who's been itching every day of their life as long as they can remember, and, and they don't even know what it means not to itch. So I, I think a lot of times they tend to underestimate this. So you and I both do clinical trials, and we know that ideally we want to get a good measurement of just how much disease does every patient have. And to do that, we have come up with some some validated assessment tools that we really use in clinical trials. And you mentioned the easy score, which is kind of a more holistic evaluation of the extent as well as the type and severity of the atopic dermatitis. And we, we categorize patients as mild, moderate, or severe based on that more holistic scale. But we have a number of these other validated systems, including POEM and SCORAD. We also have a system that tries to help us understand how much does this disease impact our patient's overall quality of life? And we don't have perfect assessments. Sometimes we use the Dermatology Life Quality Index or the DLQI. We know that if it's above 10, it means it has a major impact on this patient's overall quality of life. And if it's a zero or a one, it means they're really not impacted at all. And 
So we, we try our best to really give our patients the tools to get that disease under control. And probably the most important thing that we have to assess is the itch. And often we'll do this on an itch severity uh, scaling that goes from zero, which is no itch, and 10, which is the worst possible itch that that patient can imagine. We often talk about the investigator's global assessment, and this can be something that's a little tough to kind of wrap your, your mind around because what we do is we, we look at the patient at an arm's length and we look at pretty much all of their disease over all of their body and we give them an, an assessment grade. And it goes from clear, meaning there is no sign of active disease at all. You might have some dispigmentation, but no active disease. And almost clear means there's a little touch of disease. Maybe it's a little bit pink, but just a bit. Maybe a tiny bit thick somewhere or a little bit flaky, but no oozing or crusting. And then we evaluate mild, moderate, or severe, really based on the quality and, and for severe disease, the extent of those plaques. And when we're looking at patients who have significant disease, especially for systemic medications, we're generally looking at those patients with moderate or severe disease. And we're looking to see how many of them get down to clear or almost clear, which is by definition a two-grade improvement, by just utilizing that one treatment that we're, we're um, studying. Now, these are tools that we use in clinical trials, but Jonathan, I'm interested in finding out from you I know you have a busy eczema practice. What do you do in real life? You have five people waiting. You know, they've been waiting to see you for a long time. It took me three months to get in. What are you actually doing in real life when the patient is sitting in your office? How do you do that assessment? Yeah, so I don't think there's a one size fits all. And I think you have to be pragmatic about what really will fit into your practice setting reasonably well. But I would strongly encourage doing something, right? Building some structured assessments in to get a, a more valid or more reliable way of assessing this. Um, you know, as much as the easy score is the preferred outcome measure in trials by global consensus, despite its acronym, there's nothing easy about it. It's hard. It takes eight minutes to do if you're not skilled <laughs> in it. And so it's like, who's doing that in a busy practice setting? So in some regions, like maybe you're, I don't know, an insurance company might insist upon it. So you have to. But in general, if you're going to do a lesional severity assessment, I would say you take the pragmatic road. You do an IgA scale to look at the overall lesional severity, and you do a body surface area because body surface area is super important in this disease, as it is in psoriasis and so many of other inflammatory skin disorders. But that's not enough. You've got to also assess the symptoms. So you talked about some of these already. You know, the an NRS itch. Uh, it takes literally five seconds to ask an NRS itch. You don't even have to do it yourself. You can have your staff do it when rooming the patient, right? It can be done through, uh, you know, the health record patient portal the night before, right? There's lots of ways of doing this, but I think you, you really want to capture a, like a patient global severity assessment, an NRS itch at the, at the least. They provide such important information. And I think they fill in the gaps that we alluded to earlier with that whole disconnect between the patient and physician experience. Yeah, I think those are great points, and and added, you know, everybody has to get itch and and um, sleep as well. Ask when was the last time you had a, a, a full night's sleep? Because for a lot of them, there is no full night's sleep, and I think patients underestimate their disease extent. I have patients say to me, I have it on my arms and legs. And I say, you mind just taking off your shirt? And it's all over their back. And they just can't see it. They don't even realize it. 
So I, I agree with you. I keep it simple. Ask the patient, how you doing? <laughs> you know, simple, basic questions, I think, can really help us to understand how we're doing um, as dermatologists. So we're going to take a quick look now at, a, at a, a patient video. This is a patient who has moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, and she's going to her dermatologist, kind of been referred around a little bit. And um, this will help us get a better idea of the burden that our patients are experiencing and how we can help to get this burden under control. So let's take a few minutes and, and look at this, this video. Hi, my name is Sarah Whitmore. I'm 24 years old. Um, I've been dealing with atopic dermatitis for a long time. Um, my friend recommended that I meet with Dr. Michelle Johnson and I'll be telehealthing from Winter Park, Florida to Orlando. Hello, Sarah. I'm Dr. Johnson. Nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you. Why don't you tell me about what brings you in for this call today? Um, I've been dealing with atopic dermatitis um, since I was a teenager, um, and I just feel like it's getting worse, and what I used to do just isn't working anymore. Okay, and what is it that you used to do? Um, my past provider, um, mostly gave me creams to use and then an oral prednisone from time to time, um, just sometimes. Okay. Um, why don't you tell me a little bit about some of the symptoms that you're having? Um, it's been like really, I, I feel like it's looking worse. Um, and it's been itchy and kind of painful as well. Okay. So itchy, um, so it's itchy. It's painful. Uh, it's starting to look worse. Um, and I'm sure that's bothersome for you. Yeah, no, it is. Um, I'm an elementary school teacher, so I stand in front of kids a lot. And I'm just, I feel like I'm getting more self-conscious about it. Okay, that's understandable. Um, now the itch and the pain, is that to the point of disrupting your sleep? Um, yeah, I've woken up a few times because of it. Okay. Um, what I'd like to do is there's something called the numeric rating scale. Um, there are tools that clinicians can use that will help us uh, really kind of pinpoint where you are um, in the dermatitis, because it's not always easy for us as clinicians to figure out what you're feeling and describing um, and what we're seeing and hearing, uh, meaning there could be a disconnect. You might be feeling worse than we're able to see and what you're able to describe. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to ask just a few questions um, to kind of see if it can maybe help me better understand where you are and what you're dealing with. Would that be all right? Yeah, I don't remember my past provider using any tools like that, but I'm I'm fine with it. Okay, yeah, as I say, it could really it could really help kind of figure out where you are with the dermatitis and maybe inform treatment going forward. Okay. Okay. Now, this numeric rating scale, um it's a scale of 0 to 10, 0 being not at all and 10 being really pretty bad. So, the first question is, um how was your itch on average within the past 24 hours on a scale of zero to 10? Um, I'd say about a seven. Seven, okay. And then what about skin pain in the last 24 hours? Probably also a seven. A seven, okay. Now this last one is about sleep, but for this one, zero would be great night's sleep, not bothersome at all. How would you rate your sleep in the past 24 hours? 
Um, maybe like a six because it does wake me up, you know, once or twice a night. A six. Okay. So you're getting some sleep, but it is disrupted. It's not a good night's sleep. Yeah. Okay. So I'm thinking based on your answers to the numeric rating score, um, I think I would recommend that at this point we step up to a biologic um, because clearly the topical that you're using isn't doing the trick and doing the oral corticosteroid intermittently and every now and then isn't really optimal for you either. If that's something that you would consider, that's certainly something that I would be willing to prescribe at this point. Does that sound agreeable? Yeah, no, I'm willing to try anything. That sounds good. Okay. What I would do is um, we'll prescribe you a biologic. I would have you check back in a few weeks. We'll see how you're doing with that. Um, certainly, we'd be monitoring you. Hopefully, you'll see some improvement. Um, and then if that's working, we'll just continue on with that. Um, and at the very least, we can start working towards something to figure out get you some improvement, get you some relief, and see what track we need to take. Because what you're currently doing isn't enough, but maybe we can figure out what is going to do the trick for you um, and kind of kind of move forward. I know this is frustrating for you, and I wouldn't want you to suffer needlessly. So, Jonathan, that was kind of a typical moderate to severe woman with atopic dermatitis. And I think one of the key lessons here is that we tend to delay, I think, yeah. a lot in getting these patients to the systemic therapy that they need. And I know you're a referral source. How often do you find this? I think it almost by definition, everyone, right, who gets in to see me has already got, I mean, I'm, I'm not the first dermatologist they're seeing, right? So they've seen probably at least a primary care physician, plus on top of that, one or more dermatologists or maybe allergists along the way for many with chronic disease, I mean, they, they may have seen 20 dermatologists over the life course and are often so confused by the guidance. They're coming in with shopping bags of topicals and all kinds. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think we really need to work on, you know, making the appropriate step ups sooner and not just letting patients languish with the same old, same old over and over again. So we've learned so much about the pathogenesis of this disease. I think we're learning more and more every year. Can you walk us through where we stand today in understanding the underlying mechanisms of atopic dermatitis? Absolutely. And thanks for teeing that up. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big, there's a lot that we know now that, you know, even 10 years ago, we didn't know. So it's an exciting time. One of the most well, I think, established both clinical and epidemiologic observations is that hereditary nature of the disease. Even before we understood any of the genetics, we knew that, boy, this runs in families. And so if one parent, you know, has uh, atopic disease and not that, that doesn't just mean atopic dermatitis, right? That could be asthma, hay fever, food allergies. You've got about a 50% increase in the odds or risk of uh, the child having atopic dermatitis. Now, if both parents have it right now, it becomes, a 300 to 500% increase in that risk of having atopic dermatitis. And uh, up to 70% of patients with atopic dermatitis have family histories of atopic disease. Some have argued it might be higher and they just don't even know about it, right? So this is super common and we understand that, that this is something that runs in families. 
More recently, though, we've really started to understand more about the genetics. And, you know, going back to the early 2000s, we understood about flagrant gene, you know, null mutations, knockout mutations as a playing an important role um, in a large subset of patients. But it turns out it's just not that simple. And there's a lot more going on. There's epigenetic factors. There's a lot of environmental factors, right? So even when patients have the genetic predispositions, they often need that sort of second hit um, you know, of the environmental triggers, whether that's the dryness of winter or some other irritants or other things to really challenge the barrier and set it off. But once they have those defects in the skin barrier, as well as that immune dysregulation, um, that really, those are the two sort of hallmarks of what make up uh, atopic dermatitis. A lot of debate, which, what's the chicken? What's the egg? Is it the barrier that kicks it off? Is it the inflammation that kicks it off? It almost doesn't matter. Because in all patients, both of these pillars are playing a very important role. From the skin barrier anomalies, there's a lot there uh, in terms of decreased expression of filaggrin and epidermal lipids, ceramides, antimicrobial peptides. And you have increased epidermal differentiation, all kinds of you know, increased transepidermal water loss, et cetera. On the immune side, we've got both you know, type 2 inflammation in the skin. We've got systemic inflammation that's happening. We've got, you know, the, these, the comorbid atopic disease related to allergen sensitization. So there's, there's just a ton going on. And that, that complexity uh, has really been such a challenge to sort of target and figure out, well, which of these is the best way to treat patients, which is the most important. So this schematic gives you a little bit of a, a or, or a lot more of a deep dive into the pathomechanisms of the disease. And it really illustrates, I mean, it's almost dizzying what's going on here, right? But to simplify this, you know, you've got, you've got the, the, you know, the, the skin barrier, so to speak, right? You've got the epidermis and the keratinocytes represented. You've got the superficial dermis with different inflammatory cell types and, and arguably the most important effector cell in this disease are the T helper two cells with variable contribution from other T helper subsets or other cell types. But you've also got the role of the nerve because the peripheral nerve plays a very important role in itch and they're all feeding into each other. And then you've got the environmental triggers on top of that. So you've got exogenous insults to the barrier. Then that's going to lead to the release of so-called alarmins like thymic stromal lymphopoietin, IL-33, IL-25. That's gonna lead to the upregulation of inflammation in the superficial dermis, but then those inflammatory cascades don't just cause more inflammation, but they're actually going to bind to the skin barrier and lead to more issues in terms of the skin barrier, decreased epidermal differentiation, all the things that I already mentioned. At the sensory nerve level, it's really quite fascinating too because there is so much going on in terms of these neuroimmune synapses where the inflammation has the opportunity to really directly trigger itch or amplify itch We've learned a lot about the role of IL-4 and 13 as potential amplifiers of itch, whereas IL-31 is a direct trigger of itch. So there's a lot of complexity there. And then, of course, all of those itch signals feed back to the brain, though we know much less about the central itch mechanisms. We, we tend to think and focus much more on the peripheral mechanisms of itch in this disease um, and its management. So let's take a closer look at the role of IL-13 in particular in the pathophysiology of atopic dermatitis. Atopic dermatitis is a chronic inflammatory skin condition driven in part by the type 2 inflammatory cytokine, IL-13. 
In atopic dermatitis, Th2 cells secrete elevated levels of cytokines, including IL-13. IL-13 plays a key role in the promotion of the characteristic skin barrier disruption, inflammation, skin infection, lichenification, and pruritus. The secretion of proteins involved in collagen metabolism is altered in the presence of elevated IL-13. This contributes to thickening of the dermal layer and formation of lichenified plaques characteristic of atopic dermatitis. IL-13 also acts as a pyridogen by activating sensory neurons in the skin that are involved in chronic itch. Scratching may further disrupt the skin barrier, promoting infection and inflammatory responses. Lebrachizumab is a humanized monoclonal antibody that selectively binds to an epitope on soluble IL-13 that prevents heterodimerization of the two subunits of the IL-13 receptor, IL-13 receptor alpha-1 and IL-4 receptor alpha, without blocking IL-13 binding to the IL-13 receptor alpha-1 subunit. This prevents downstream JAK-STAT-6 signaling, which in turn prevents the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Yeah, so that I think was a very informative uh, video. And uh, now, uh, Linda, I'd like to turn it back over to you to discuss um, you know, some, some other areas that we haven't discussed, which is really on the issue of flare prevention. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. That was a great overview. And we can see this is a complicated disease. You know, there's a lot of factors that go into this. And when we think about treating it, we have to understand that we have to have a game plan in place that gets that acute flare under control, but also has a long-term maintenance plan. And when we talk about a flare, you know, there's a lot of talk, well, what is a flare? And the European Task Force in 2020 basically defined a flare as an acute, clinically significant worsening of the signs and symptoms of atopic dermatitis that requires some type of therapeutic intervention. So, you know, the goal is we got to get that flare under control, but you can't stop there. We have to have a long-term game plan. And, you know, that I think that's part of the problem. And I, I've seen this with my own patients. You know, they think I'm going to treat the flare and then I'm going to stop, you know, and they don't necessarily think about the other things that go into that, that uh, flare trigger. You know, there are endogenous issues. We have, we have hormonal changes. We have changes in the microbiome. We have environmental uh, triggers, allergens and antigens. And it, you talk to some patients, they flare up in the summer when they sweat and others flare up in the winter when it's cold and dry. And some, you know, you go shopping and you buy the wool sweater without trying it on first. You get it home and you can't wait to get that thing off because there's no way you can have that irritating fabric on your clothing. So there are so many different things and they might be different for every particular patient. And Jonathan, talk us through, you know, there is such a major impact of this constant flare and then back and then flare on the patient's. Yeah, the, I mean, these are such important issues. And I think they're often overlooked in clinical practice because they take time. You know, you've got you've to interact with patients and you've got to sort of hear that. And, then, and it does take time to assess, but it really pays off because if patients can understand what their triggers are and avoid them in a way that's not going to sort of ruin their quality of life, then that can make a major impact in terms of stabilizing the disease long-term. The challenge is, so much of the impact of the disease on patients is actually sort of a consequence of a lot of the different, you know, trigger avoidance techniques. So for example, right, you know, the impact of sweat, 
Well, they don't exercise as much. Now they have reduced physical activity. Uh, you know, um, well, you know, going out in certain social situations that may provide a little bit of stress or work-related stress uh, can flare them up. So what do they do? They avoid that work stress. They, they avoid certain occupations or they won't go out with their friends. And all of a sudden, we see the disease impacting every aspect of patients' lives because they're trying to cope and find those strategies of avoidance. So we've got numerous studies done over the decades, looking at the burden of the disease at the population level, at an individual level. At the population level, it is arguably the most burdensome skin disease overall, looking at both, you know, when you combine prevalence and the individual patient burden. Um, some of the estimates have put it, and, and, and those are conservative estimates from older literature at over 4 billion in annual burden. It's likely uh, probably 30% or more than that uh, nowadays. Um, you know, increased sick visits, uh, sick days at home, impact on mental health, skin pain, social isolation, uh, you know, really affecting all aspects of patients' lives. And I think, you know, even if you're not going to ask about all of these in clinical practice, just recognize at the very least that these are all possibilities and how severe bad atopic dermatitis really can be for patients. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And, and one of the easy questions that I ask my patients to truly get a handle on how bad their disease is, is I ask you, how often do you think about your skin? And for some patients, they don't even understand the question. They're thinking about their skin 24 seven. I'm always thinking about my skin. I'm thinking about what can I wear? Where am I gonna go? What am I gonna do? And I know I'm getting making headway when my patient comes in and I say, how often do you think about your skin? And they look at me and they smile and they say, I don't think about my, my skin anymore. Right. And that means we're doing a great job. And so just to talk about now some, how do we get there? What are some of our treatment strategies? Um, when we look at all patients with atopic dermatitis, the foundational therapy is really good skin care. And we know we talk about soak and seal. Bathing is actually quite important for these patients. We want to bathe with gentle cleansers, but we certainly want to seal the, in the moisture once that happens. We know this debrides the skin. And with those patients with more mild to moderate disease, we certainly start with topical therapy. Topical corticosteroids are the mainstay of therapy, and we advance as the patient has more significant disease. We utilize our non-steroidal options, including the topical immunomodulators and crisoboral. And we have rexalidinib for mild to moderate disease that I think has been really revolutionary in getting these patients under control and controlling that itch. But as those patients have more significant disease, we really have to start thinking now about giving them a systemic option that not only will get that flare under control, but will also keep them on a long-term management um, level. And, you know, it kind of changes the way we think about this. And we have to think about this as a chronic disease. This is like a diabetes or a high blood pressure. We're not going to necessarily episodically treat, but we're going to put you on a good treatment regimen and we're going to keep you on that regimen. And when we look at this list, Jonathan, six years ago, we didn't have this list. You know, we had, <laughs> we had the broad systemic immunosuppressants, but we didn't have these wonderful new drugs that we have now. For those patients with moderate to severe disease, we have biologic agents, we have the oral JAK inhibitors, and these have all been quite revolutionary in really getting these patients under control and keeping them under control. Yeah, and, and this, you know, depicts where we've been at, you know, until not that long ago, right? And, and how things are and, and why we've needed to evolve. 
um, is that you know patients who get topical therapies just aren't well controlled. And yes, we've seen new developments in topical therapy and we're very happy. And some of this research predates some of those new therapies. But we have to fully acknowledge that for so many patients, probably no topical will ever really do the, the trick, you know, and we're going to have to recognize when is it time to make that step up to systemic therapy. But here what we see is that, you know, you've got um, amongst adults and adolescent patients who are getting, you know, topicals alone or, uh, you know, topical plus systemic therapy that you've got here, uh, you know, uh, across both subsets, whether it's adolescents and adults, you know, a substantial subset of patients who are reporting dissatisfaction with their current treatment, um, whether it's physician-reported dissatisfaction, whether it's patient-reported satisfaction, we're not happy with all the options, right, with their success either on the topical realm. We may lean there initially for safety reasons, right, but we're not getting the results we would love to achieve for our patients. And so this really illustrates that in, in the types of patients that we see, we're, we're, we could do more. And we definitely need to, um, I think, consider that growing toolbox that Linda just showed us, uh, which, you know, and we're, we're so fortunate to have. So now we're going to take a look at a patient with moderate to severe topic dermatitis who's experiencing, you know, frequent flares and how his clinician decided to approach getting them under control. Hello, my name is Mark. I'm 27 years old. I live in Tampa, Florida, and I have atopic dermatitis. Um, I was recommended by my fiance um, to try this new provider. Um, so I'm really excited to see if maybe I can get some relief. Hi, Mark. I'm Dr. Johnson. Nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you. Why don't you tell me what brings you in for this call today? Um. Well, so I've been um struggling with atopic dermatitis for a while now um i think i've had it ever since childhood but it wasn't really diagnosed and i've been using these like um cortical steroid creams but i haven't really been getting much relief okay um and when you say not much relief are you having it pretty consistently or describe yeah, to me um, what your symptoms are like yeah, so I'll have a flare-up at least like once a month and, mm -hmm. you know, they're really itchy and sometimes it oozes or it's just so bad I'll, I'll scratch till it bleeds. Um, you know, sometimes in the middle of the night I'll wake up with bloody sheets because it, it's bleeding and things like that. It's just, and it's like painful. It's been really difficult to to manage. That sounds terrible. It sounds very, yeah. very painful. So you say that you are... Having flares about once a month, you have had this since childhood um, mm -hmm. and you were actually given a diagnosis in childhood or? Not in childhood, maybe about like, you know, a few years ago when is when I actually got an official diagnosis. But, um, you know, I've always been kind of using those creams before in childhood. I had like the over the counter creams. Okay. Um, so I've been using those for a while. Okay. Now, um, do you notice anything specifically that can trigger your flares, like um, stress or weather, hot and humid weather? I know in Florida, that's a tough place. Um, any, you know, thing in the environment, anything that you can kind of pinpoint that you think might trigger these flares? I haven't noticed anything specifically that triggers them. I just, you know, they just happen often. 
Okay. Um, and when you have these flares and you say they, they itch and you scratch to the point of, of oozing and bleeding, um, when they scar over, um, are you noticing any pigment changes uh, at all, either from the scarring after or from the topical creams that you're using? Um, yeah, I've noticed like maybe like some light patches or, you know, kind of like blotchy skin, I guess, you know, in the areas where I where I have the flare ups the most, which is like my arms and legs and kind of like my abdomen area. Right. That's called hypopigmentation. That's um, a loss of pigmentation. Um, and that's noticed especially in darker skin. But mm -hmm. after you've had um, areas where you've scratched and bled and scarred over, you might also see hyperpigmentation. So if you haven't seen that yet, that's that's good. But don't be alarmed if in some of those areas where it scars over, at some point you might see hyperpigmentation. So the skin might actually appear darker. Okay. Um, so you have it mostly, you said, on your arms and legs. Have mm -hmm. you noticed it um, on any, or, or are you feeling symptoms on any areas where you maybe can't see it? Your back, your lower back? Um, It's mainly like arms and legs and kind of like my front or like chest, you know, area-ish around there. Okay. what Mark, what do you do for a living? I'm a CPA. Your CPA. Okay. So mm -hmm. I know quite a few accountants and I know tax season can be especially stressful. Um, did you notice flares more during tax season or still kind of the average flare that you usually it, have? It was kind of the, I guess the average flare. I mean, I was definitely stressed during tax season, but I didn't really, you know, pay attention if it was because of stress it, it seemed to kind of they happen frequently so i i didn't really i wasn't able to tell okay um i would say that based on what you're telling me um and you don't really see any specific trigger at this point i would recommend patch testing um on your skin just so we can kind of get an idea of what might be causing these flares um, I'm also thinking that since hypopigmentation has been associated with long-term use of the corticosteroids, it might be time to introduce a biologic therapy in the hope of minimizing these flares, um, get you some relief, um, and help really to control your atopic dermatitis. Um, if that's something that sounds that like you'd be willing to try, uh, my recommendation would be that we try a biologic and switch to a topical preparation that's called a calcineurin inhibitor. Um, we would give that a try for maybe three to four weeks, come back with another call, see how you're doing. Hopefully you'd get some improvement. Um, it might not be long enough since you're only having flares about every month or so, but my goal would be that you would at least see some improvement. Um, and if that's something you'd be willing to try, that's certainly something I think I would recommend at this point. Does that sound agreeable to you? Yeah, I'm definitely willing to try. I mean, any kind of relief is better than what I have now. So I think that was a very uh, helpful video um, and gives us a little bit of a of a, a sense of some of the things we can do and and implementing some of the different you know patient reported outcomes and experience there. Um, you, you know, Linda, how do you go about this, especially when it comes to telehealth, right? Because there, there's definitely I think limitations to what can and cannot be done. What are your what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, and I know we live in a world where sometimes telehealth is is the best that we can do, and and that's it can be a very important option. I do hope, though, and we we know with these particular patients in these videos, they had seen other dermatologists. They did have full skin exams done. We did, you know, their their dermatologists currently had assessments that were done, so they were able to do a telehealth visit. I find it easiest though with an established patient. I like to have my hands on them up front look all the places where I want to see as opposed to where they want to show me, and then um, really check in. We can check in by telehealth once they're on an ongoing treatment regimen just to see how they are. I agree. I, and, you know, sometimes if I don't have that luxury for whatever reason, you know, supplementing with patient photos can be very, very helpful, whether that's the patient sending their own photos or if it's a patient who's been previously seen by another provider in the practice, I may have access to photos in the EHR that help me get a better understanding and round out that picture. So thanks for that. So now let's shift gears and talk more about uh, some of these new targeted biologic therapies that are out there. Uh, and, and we are so fortunate. Uh, there are three biologics that are targeting type 2 inflammation that are either approved or uh, about to be approved for atopic dermatitis, particularly for moderate to severe disease after they've already had an inadequate response to topical therapy. And, you know, they're, they're all working on the same axis, but they technically have different mechanisms. So dupilumab uh, blocks the IL-4 receptor alpha subunit, which is responsible for the signaling of both interleukins-4 and interleukin-13, whereas trilokinumab and lebrachizumab are binding to the free IL-13 cytokine. And even there, there's some nuanced differences between the two of them in terms of their impact of, um, uh, on binding to uh, what is called the decoy receptor, the interleukin-13 receptor alpha-2. Uh, whether or not that is important is still very highly you know, debated in the field. Uh, but technically, there are differences, and there are certainly differences in terms of the pharmacokinetics of the drugs and the binding rates and dissociation rates as well. And then on top of that, we've got the oral JAK inhibitors, uh, abracitinib and upadacitinib, both approved in the United States. Uh, they are uh, selective JAK1 inhibitors, and JAK1 is responsible for the downstream signaling of both interleukin-4 and 13, as well as other important cytokines in the pathogenesis of atopic dermatitis. And when we look at the data, now there is an extraordinary amount of data for all of these drugs. I mean, we, we are so fortunate. If you love data, you could read this stuff for, for months on end, right? We're just going to present just a teeny snapshot of some of the, the, the key data for you to be aware of. Uh, so these are sort of the pivotal data from the SOLO1 and SOLO2 trials. These are the, the flagship monotherapy studies looking at uh, dupilumab in adults, 18 and up, with moderate to severe topic dermatitis, no background topical therapy. So this is monotherapy. And what we see is that between 35 to 40% of patients achieve this investigator's global assessment score of clear or almost clear, and about 50% of patients achieve this easy 75 response. And uh, so this gives you a little bit of sense. And IGA clear, almost clear is a very robust endpoint and indicates patients are doing very well. Easy 75 responses are a little bit less rigorous to achieve, which is why there's a higher rate of patients achieving that. Um, but as it reflects a moderate clinical improvement. 
But there are significant improvements observed across literally hundreds of endpoints shown in post-hoc analyses, secondary endpoints, different trials as well. Uh, and so I think we can be quite clear that it is effective uh, at treating the whole patient with moderate to severe disease. When we look at the sort of the kinetics of response and also taking into account that in the real world, you know, clinical trials, we like monotherapy studies because they're easier to interpret the, you know, and the results. But in the real world, we're used to using biologics together with topical therapy. And so we've got data from the Chrono study, which used background topical corticosteroids um, or, uh, you know, calcineurin inhibitors at the investigator's discretion uh, in both treatment arms, in the dupilumab arm and in the placebo arm. But what we see is that there's a little bit of a difference in the kinetics of response. For an easy 50, which is a minimal clinical improvement, there already is a plateau happening between week four and week eight. Whereas for easy 90 shown at the bottom, that takes longer. And, and it's debatable where that plateau even happens, but recognizing it may happen after six months. I love to just high level summarize this for patients to let them know if there's a range of responses. You should expect to already have some good improvement within the first four weeks or so. But, you know, especially for tougher cases, it might take six months, maybe even a year till you get to that clear point. But just, you know, if you've already gotten that early response, you can be pretty comfortable that it will continue to improve over time. From the safety perspective, uh, overall, the, the results have been quite clean. Uh, it's been one of the major strengths of targeting type 2 inflammation. Um, what we see overall is you know, low rates of discontinuation due to adverse events. But the two biggies that came up in the trials were the injection site reactions, which are usually manageable, and then the ocular surface disease, call it what you will, conjunctivitis, dry eyes, eye price, a variety of different labels that showed up in the trials, but they're all showing sort of the same thing. And those are increased with dupilumab compared to placebo, and we see it in the real world. It is not a reason for discontinuation in 99% of patients, but it is something we're going to need to be comfortable recognizing and managing. So that's sort of dupilumab. Dupilumab was the first kid on the block, so to speak, in the biologic space. Linda, can you tell us a little bit more about some of the newer therapies? Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, um, dupilumab targeting both IL-4 and IL-13, FDA approved out the way down to age six months. Now our new guy is tralecinumab. And this was studied in adults, and this is a fully human monoclonal antibody, and it neutralizes IL-13, and it prevents um, the receptor interaction. And so this was studied, again, very similar to phase three clinical trials. And what we found was uh, after a loading dose, these patients were treated every two weeks for 16 weeks, and we saw up to 22% of patients getting to clear or almost clear, and about... Uh, about a third of them getting to an easy 75. And Jonathan, you alluded to this, that you know these are very high bars when we're looking at clinical trials. These are patients who have had atopic dermatitis for most of their lives. They have about half their body surface area, and we're asking them to get to clear, almost clear. So when we look at these endpoints for all of these studies, these aren't the only patients who are happy. There are a ton of other patients who maybe didn't reach the endpoints, but still had very meaningful improvements in their condition. And then this is a, a drug that has been studied as all of these had in long-term studies. And this are, these are results out to two years of, of time. And we see that overall, this drug tends to maintain efficacy over time. Some of these studies had interrupted therapy. Uh, 
some of them had a washout period, so they were off drug for certain periods of time. But no matter how we look at the data, we see that this is a drug that gets effect and tends to continue effect over the course of time. And here we see data in an ongoing study, but this is the two-year uh, readout. And when we look at safety, again, these are really safe drugs. These are biologic drugs, and people think, oh my goodness, I'm getting an injection. What's happening? But these are very, very safe drugs. And again, the most common adverse events were upper respiratory tr tract infections. And we do see some conjunctivitis um, with trilokinumab as well. Hard to know if it's going to be similar or not to dupilumab. But again, most of these are mild. Most of these patients stay on therapy, even if they develop conjunctivitis. But we have a new kit on the block that's not yet FDA approved. Yes, and that is lebricizumab. And so conceptually similar mechanism as it targets the interleukin-13. Again, nuances in how it binds and the binding affinities and dissociation rates. But here we see, um, you know, from the primary studies, which are the Advocate 1 and Advocate 2 Phase 3 studies, uh, similar results overall, uh, but very nice results, um, comparable to what was observed with uh, the efficacy seen in the dupilumab studies. Uh, for both the IgA clear, almost clear responses, as well as the EZ75 responses. And so this gives us yet again another option for us to, to think about. Safety here also very similar, right? And it makes sense, right? These are similar mechanisms, even if one may be slightly more effective than the others, but conceptually we're seeing the similar adverse event profile here. And I agree, it's debatable, like which one has bet more or less same conjunctivitis? I think we'll learn that from real world studies, probably more than anything else. Uh, but, but overall, very clean safety profile here. Uh, you know, leverkizumab um, has also been studied in combination with topical corticosteroids. So the data I showed you from Advocate 1, Advocate 2 were the monotherapy studies uh, without background TCS. But we also have uh, in combination with TCS, um, and which, which is arguably the more real-world scenario um, to, be, uh, to be had, so to speak, or to be studied. And what we see is that um, even in when used in combination with topical corticosteroids, uh, you know, it, you know, that combination therapy significantly beats using placebo plus topical corticosteroids. And, uh, but, you know, when we compare between trials, of the combination therapy studies versus the monotherapy studies. I think there's, you know, we see a boost in efficacy, particularly for those easy 75 responses. And I think that's suggestive to us of what, uh, you know, the real world, we probably would want to recommend using it in combination with topical corticosteroids to get a little extra oomph, so to speak. But this provides for us a very important option. Now, of course, whenever you're assessing a, a therapy for atopic dermatitis, you also have to look at itch. And here, uh, we see a composite endpoint for patients who are achieving not only that easy 75, which would be a, a moderate clinical improvement in the lesional severity, but who also get a four-point reduction in itch, which would be a moderate improvement in itch as well. And of course, that's what patients want. They want the improvement in both the lesions and the itch. And here we see you know, a high proportion of patients who are getting there already by week 16, and, and not even a clear indication of plateau, suggesting there might even be more efficacy beyond week 16. Uh, in terms of the safety observed in the combination therapy trials with topical corticosteroids, we don't see any you know, differences observed in safety, no new safety signals. Um, so we're, we're quite reassured using it both as monotherapy and in combination. Uh, 
Now, I mentioned earlier, I alluded to, well, you know, there's not a clear indication of plateau. It suggests that there, you know, maybe even more efficacy. What about the other way? What about when patients already do very well early on? Well, can they, can they maintain that? And these are some fascinating data looking at the maintenance period of the trough between week 16 and week 52, where patients who already were responders by week 16 uh, would get re-randomized to either get the continuous lebrachizumab every other week or maintenance dose spread out every four weeks or even withdrawal. So just going up to placebo. So it's all placebo controlled at this point. They don't know what they're getting. But what we see is that for all three treatment arms, there's a good maintenance, a really good maintenance of response. The best is with continuous every two-week dosing. But the every four-week dosing looks really good and makes you wonder, well, maybe I shouldn't even bother continuing every two weeks. Maybe I should drop down to every four weeks, and that's the ideal maintenance dose after week 16. And you know, patients always ask, well, can I come off the medication? These data suggest that there's a, a large subset that might be able to you know, after they get clear, be able to take a drug holiday and still maintain the response for, for a reasonable period of time. Doesn't mean they may never have to go back on it, but this is suggested that they can really maintain and do quite well. And the safety data we've seen up to week 52 look uh, quite good. No new safety signals observed, you know, at week 52 compared to week 16. And so all of that um, is quite reassuring. So uh, this is, uh, looks to be a new option coming to us uh, immediately, essentially, for our use. And uh, we're excited to welcome a new addition to the toolbox. But, but wait, there's more. Yeah. And there's even more options coming. And so, Linda, can you tell us a little bit about uh, one of the, the next options uh, in the pipeline? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's so exciting. And Jonathan, you know, it's fascinating to me when you present that long-term data. And we saw it with Trelo Kilumab as well, that you could go, you have the option of every two weeks or every four weeks. Before I go into the NEMO, let me just ask you, in, in your practice, do you think you would reserve going every four weeks for a patient who's really doing well, like more clear than almost clear, or do you feel like it doesn't matter that much? You would potentially- So I, if it was up to me uh, purely, I would want to get them to clear. I, I'd want, and I want it to be more than just, okay, you got to clear, it's week 16, now let's pull back. I, I'd like it to be stably clear for a while. You know, that's something that's hard to do in a clinical trial, but in the real world, you know, we, we should have the discretion clinically to, to do what's best for our individual patients. So it's great to have the option of, of going down to that maintenance dose, but some are going to need to continue at every two weeks for longer till they get to that point of clear. But once they get to clear, then it's going to be a very interesting conversation with patients about, you know, when, when should we make that decision of pulling back? Um, and, uh, and giving it a try, I think it's going to be a great option for a lot of patients. I was going to ask you, do you think it's meaningful to be able to say to a patient, you can do this once a month as opposed to every two weeks? Is that a meaningful difference for people or does it really depend? I, you know, I think it is meaningful. I, it, is, it, it would be more meaningful if it was once a year, right? But, right. but I think once a month really makes a difference. And I think it, it's not just less shots. It gets back to a point you mentioned earlier that, Patients every minute of the day are thinking about their disease. Every day, they are thinking about atopic dermatitis. And when you only have to worry about taking a shot once a month, then your disease is turned into, I don't think about my disease anymore. I just have to remember to take my shot once a month and life is good. And that is, I think, a whole different 
perspective for patients where it's just, they're not worried about the next flare. Everything is different for them. So I think it does matter. Great. So now I'm going to go into our last one that we're going to talk about today. And as you mentioned, this is something a little bit different, a little bit off the theme that we've been talking about. Uh, Nemalizumab is a biologic agent. It's a humanized monoclonal antibody that actually targets that itch cytokine, the IL-31 cytokine um, and the receptor. And what we did when we studied this was we actually studied it in combination. So it wasn't studied as monotherapy at all. We studied it in combination with topical steroids or topical immunomodulators pretty much right out of the gate. And you can imagine if you're targeting that itch cytokine, we should hopefully see a reduction in itch. And that is pretty much what we saw. And when we look at the clinical trial data, we see that we're starting to see a difference really within the first few days of treatment um, in terms of the reduction of itch. When we look at the easy score or the improvement in the rash, remember they are using it with concomitant therapy, but it certainly was better in reducing the rash as well as compared with using the placebo and topical steroids. So this is something that has completed phase three clinical trials. We have this in long-term studies as well. The good news about patients who are in clinical trials is that they might start out on placebo, but generally we tend to transition them onto active therapy after the first main phase three component of the trial has been completed. And in long-term, we study them, <clears throat> pretty much everybody on active therapy. And we can see that these patients get under control and maintain control both in their itch as well as in their rash over time. And as was the theme with the other biologic agents, this is a drug that tends to be well-controlled. We're not seeing any major adverse events. The most common were nasopharyngitis, infections, um, worsening of atopic dermatitis. There was a small increase in CPK and then injection site reactions were the other. But this was a drug we've been studying all of these newer drugs um, since their phase three clinical trials. And these all look like really, really great options. So it is an exciting time. And, and we have this wealth of resources right now, Jonathan. And, and it's interesting because, you know, we are going to have, right now we have tralokinumab. We are going to have a new one, lebrachizumab. This one will probably be approved, we hope, down to um, age 12 out of the gate. Do you think that's going to be a difference in terms of, of trying to differentiate between IL-13 inhibitors? So it's interesting because um, even though trilokinumab was approved first, you know, a while ago, lebrachizumab might actually get the adolescent approval faster. And that's more just for technical reasons than anything else. But trilokinumab should eventually get the adolescent approval. Mm -hmm. So assuming both get both adolescent and adult approval, I don't know if that will be the big differentiator, at least eventually, maybe early on it would be. Um, I think both have the option of going to every four-week dosing. So, you know, the, you have the opportunity in both scenarios. So that in of itself is not necessarily a differentiator. But I think when you compare, and it's always tricky comparing between trials because they're different, different patient populations. But I think when you compare between the trials, uh, partially because of probably you know, um, the properties of the medications, you know, of the binding rates and dissociation rates, and partially because of the fact that with lebrachizumab, you get a double loading dose in the first couple of weeks, um, we do see a faster response with lebrachizumab um, than what was observed in the, in the clinical trials with tralokinumab. So 
that may be one of the differentiators there. Um, but I think there's, you know, there's something for everyone. I think there's a, you know, there's potential value for, uh, for all of them. Um, with trilocinumab, there may be, this is a very debatable point, but the data suggests there might be a slightly lower rate of, of the conjunctivitis as an adverse event. So that could be a potential differentiator. But I, I'm looking forward to seeing some really good real-world studies where we can then get a better sense of how they all sort of perform in, in a relatively comparable environment. You know, as you mentioned, similar classes of drugs, but these are different medications. They Absolutely. bind differently. They have different binding affinities. Do you, would you potentially use one medication where another one didn't necessarily give you the results that you were looking for? Now, that's a great question. I think we, we, we always crave more data for something like that, right? But from the, from the post-hocs that we have seen of, you know, what, what are essentially case series, you know, anywhere between 10 and 30 patients in the clinical trials who previously failed dupilumab. Well, they went on these therapies and there were subsets of patients who did well. In the case of trilocinumab, because it's already approved in different regions of the world, we've already had real world case series published out there, not even from the clinical trials that have said that some patients can do very well. So I think that lends itself to a, a paradigm, if you will, of potentially cycling through the biologics, similar to what was done in the world of psoriasis with some biologics, where they may do better with one you know, TNF alpha blocker than another in psoriasis. Here, we may find that one you know, IL-13 or a blocker works better than the other one, or even better than the IL-4 and 13 blocker. And Jonathan, the data that you presented with leverkizumab on those patients long-term who actually went on to the placebo and still maintained effect is fascinating to me. Um, quite different from what we see. We know the oral drug inhibitors are fantastic drugs, especially for the rapidity of onset in terms of reduction of itch and improvement of the, of the rash itself. But I do find when somebody stops a JAK inhibitor, the itch comes back within sometimes days and the rash can come back fairly rapidly. So this is something different with the maintenance of effect. Um, any thoughts on that? It's fascinating. You know, every once in a while, even with the JAK inhibitors, you'll have a patient who maintains, but it's got to be someone who was like stably clear for a really long time. And yeah. usually it's somebody who already had some history of like gaps of of disease quiescence between their flares, but it's rare to your point that it, they stay clear. I, I think this, you know, there's many ideas that have been posited in the academic world and suggested part of it could be the long lasting effect of the medication because of a longer half-life and binding affinity, but, and dissociation rates. But part of it may be that there is some you know, possible disease modifying effects that it might even be, you know, increasing, uh, you know, regulatory T cells or something else that has a more lasting downstream benefit. But I, th I think that's the next generation of researchers, the understanding why, because in the standard clinical trials, we don't always get those insights. So, but it is truly a fascinating question, but for now we'll have to settle on a very happy opportunity, which is we've got an option to offer to patients because like, they're always going to ask us, can I stop the medication? And, or is there an opportunity for me to take less medicine? And the answer is yes. But the key thing is we've got to monitor closely anytime we make those dosing changes, right? Because if we drop them down on the dose, we might need to eventually go back up. So we just have to keep an eye on our patients and make sure that we're, we're catching that at the right times. 
So thank you so much, Linda, for that outstanding discussion. Um, and uh, you know, just to summarize, I think some, some important high-level points that the perception of atopic dermatitis severity often differs between patients and providers. And it highlights a need for better and enhanced communication uh, between the physician and the provider. And using you know, arguably simple, effective, and valid tools to assess severity in clinical practice. Um, importantly, this is a chronic disease, and we really should aim to achieve long-term disease control uh, and focusing on flare prevention. And that you know, management of acute flares is, is uh, you know, often inadequate and almost all the time inadequate. We have to think about but managing the flares, but also thinking about that long-term picture. And then finally, uh, what an amazing growing toolbox of biologic therapies targeting IL-4, IL-13, IL-31. All of these have demonstrated uh, great efficacy and safety for the treatment of our moderate to severe atopic dermatitis patients and are now available or in development. And uh, it's, it's, it's truly an amazing time. So thank you so much. Jonathan, what a great overview. I really, I appreciate all of your insights. And I'd like to thank all of you for joining us. And I hope that you found this program to be useful as you continue to care for patients with moderate to severe disease. Jonathan, thank you for being here and contributing your insights to our discussion. Everybody have a great day. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity has been developed in partnership with Healthcare Theater from the University of Delaware. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash DRZ860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.